Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking time to join us this morning. As Greg said, my name is Brady, and I, I get the privilege of serving as the pastor of counseling here at Delta alongside uh, our lead pastor, Jonathan Davis. You've probably met him uh, when you walked in. Also blessed to serve with uh, three other wonderful godly men here in this body of believers. And uh, I do, do want to say thank you to Greg <clears throat> and Heartland for the uh, invitation to do something like this. And really, this, this began with Brother Jerry Weber in uh, Chatham. Uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> he called me about doing something like this at their church, which we did last fall. And uh, then after that, he asked me, hey, would you be interested in doing this at the associational level? And I said, if they want to do it, I would love to do it. So Jerry was really <clears throat> the genesis of all of this. So I'm very, <clears throat> very thankful for that. Well, as we uh, get started this morning, as you well know, uh, there's much discussion today around the topics of gender and sexuality. Some of you may have already had to navigate these hard issues uh, within your own family or within your church family. Um, maybe some of you struggle with these things personally and are wondering how to think through them and how to respond to them. And I am deeply, deeply thankful the Lord has not left us without hope and help to think through these really difficult issues. And my goal this morning is really simple. Uh, I don't wanna, I'm, my goal is not to analyze a bunch of secular arguments about these things. My goal is, Lord willing, to help build a biblical framework with which we can faithfully think through these, these items. Does that make sense? So to build a biblical framework with which it will help us faithfully think through these important issues. And in order to do that, we must first understand and remind ourselves what God has revealed about who we are and why he made us. And I love, listen to the beginning of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth belongs to the creator and everyone on the earth belongs to the creator. We see similar language in Colossians 1, all things specifically speaking about Jesus, all things were created through him and for him. So the world's created, it's owned by God, and so that means these, these conversations, the debates that are going on about gender, sexuality, transgenderism, homosexuality, these are not simply debates between ourselves. These are first and foremost conversations between creation and our creator, God. And a very common theme that you hear today, very common message <clears throat> in our culture and especially within the gender revolution is this, how you feel is what matters most. That is communicated in so many different forms. That's the common message that we're hearing constantly. But as Christians, we must faithfully and compassionately stand on the fact that what God has said is what matters most. And so that's why we seek to start with the Bible. 
in God's Word. We have to ask ourselves, do we really know ourselves better than our Creator does? So just to give a brief overview of where we're heading, we're going to divide this up into two sessions. The first session, uh, we're going to look at what does it mean to be created. You can see the outline there in your notes. And if you don't have notes, uh, there, there are more handouts, I think, back there in the back. We're going to look at what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means to be created male and female. We're going to take a few minutes to look at some specific aspects of the fall. And also we're going to take a few minutes to just briefly look at how the fall specifically impacts our sexuality, things like temptation. Then we're going to, take a, we're going to do a Q&A for a few minutes. We're going to take a break. And then in the second session, we're going to zero in specifically on the topic of transgenderism and provide a brief overview of that. And then also, Lord willing, think through how can we think about this biblically and how can we respond wisely and compassionately. But then also we're going to close with ultimately the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, this may feel, especially in this first session, this may feel like the basics for some of you. But if, the reason we're starting here is, if you listen to much of the conversation at all, what we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is void from so much of the conversation that's happening. I heard a person say a long time ago, I don't, I don't know where it came from, I don't know where they got it, but he said, if you assume the givens, you will eventually lose the givens. Right? So if we keep assuming that these basic, what we think are understood facts, if we keep assuming these things without returning to them and speaking about them over and over and over, we're going to lose them in the conversation. I think we're seeing that take place in our culture and sadly even within a lot of our churches. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 cast long shadows over the entire Bible. And that's probably a massive understatement. It's so foundational what God reveals in those opening chapters. And maybe this goes without saying, we're not going to cover all that can be covered. We're not going to say all that can be said. We're not going to look at all the passages of Scripture that we could. But Lord willing, like I said, we're going to build a biblical framework with which it will help us faithfully think through these issues. So we got quite a bit of ground to cover, but first, let's pray, okay? God, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help your word be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. The author of Hebrews says that your word is living and active. It, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Holy Spirit, we need you through the power of the word to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us. We need you to equip us from the sufficient, inerrant Word of God. Give us clear thoughts. 
I pray that anything that I say that is not from you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would supernaturally just cause it to fall away. And may you lift high the name of Jesus and help us to see the, not only the authority of your word, but the, the beauty, the goodness of your word and your plan for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open to uh, Genesis 1. First Roman numeral you'll see there. We're going to look at God's good design, the idea that we're created as, uh, or created in his image. Would someone read for me uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28? All right, thank you, Tara. So, so much of the conversation surrounding gender, sexuality, as I said a while ago, is really void of our author and creator, and we cannot properly understand who we are and how we're designed without turning to the one authoritative source that we have, and it's authoritative because it contains the very words of the creator himself. The first thing we see in these verses that Tara just read for us that the tri- is that the triune God, he made man. He created man. And it says that man is made in his image. And as we read through the rest of the creation account, uh, we know that there's only one part in all of creation that bears the image of God, and that is mankind. So that means we're, we're unique. We're significant and furthermore, being made in the image of God carries with it the idea that we're made as, as spiritual beings. We are not just bodies. We are embodied souls, souls that are made to relate and commune with our Creator. So what does this mean exactly, to be made in His image? We could honestly, you, we could spend multiple sessions just about this phrase alone But just to quickly summarize, to be made in his image carries the idea that we image him. We reflect him. Now, just to be clear, we're not identical to him, right? He is perfect. We are definitely not. We are far from his perfection, but we do image him. We do reflect him, not just in the things we do, but even in how we are created, So we reflect him in our moral capacities, in our relational capacities, our mental capacities, spiritual. We reflect him even in our dominion over the earth. And we see that there in verse 28. Adam's dominion reflects God's sovereign dominion over all creation. So we are like God and we're made to represent or reflect him here on earth. So a direct implication of being made in his image is, friends, our lives matter. Our bodies, our physical bodies matter. 
And our children, especially our children, our teenagers, they need to hear this from us. They need to hear that their bodies have value, that their lives really do matter, but that value comes from the Creator. The value comes from the fact that they are created in His image. I think I've got this quote there in your notes under Roman numeral one from Andrew Walker. The God who creates is the God who assigns to humans what humans are, what humans are supposed to do, and how humans are to do it. Being creatures means our highest calling and greatest pleasure is found in living in line with the God, with how God designed us. Right? So you see those themes of as creator, God has total authority. He gets to call the shots, right? But I also want you to see when humanity lives in line with that, it's ultimately for our good. Our greatest pleasure, our highest calling is found in living in line with how God designed us. So Roman numeral two there, continuing on God's good design, we're created as male and female. So we see also in this very first chapter, God created humanity in two distinct expressions, male and female. So friends, we must recognize at the very outset, the binary categories of male and female are part of, of God's creation. And as verse 31 says, it was very good. The binary categories are his idea. And it's good. And maybe this is to state the obvious, this directly contradicts what we're hearing from the world. So parents, the I think you know this already, the world would seek to disciple our kids in the exact opposite of this truth. Now, to be, clear, to be clear in this passage, the uses of male and female in these verses, it's referring to biological sex. Male, this means a human being with, in the language we use in our home, with boy parts, right? And the XY chromosomes, female, it's a human being, again, to use the language in our home, with girl parts, and XX chromosomes. So what needs to be clearly stated Friends, in our homes, in our churches, in this current culture, is our anatomy tells us what gender we are. Our anatomy tells us what gender we are. One pastor says this, Even though we note the differences in these terms, it's important to recognize that the traditional understanding of biological sex, gender, and gender identity is that they all align with one another. And it's driven by the biological markers. And the terms, male and female, they function as descriptors for all three terms. So friends, our understanding has, as believers, it has to begin here. God created human beings in his image, and he created them either as male or female. So we've, we've all heard the language. It's on our medical records. Sex assigned at birth. Really, biblically, sex is observed at birth. It's not assigned at birth. It's observed at birth. Not only has God created the binary categories of male and female, I think we can go a little bit further in saying he specifically assigns a gender to each person he has created. 
Psalm 139, 13 through 16, we read that he is the one, he is the one who forms us. And every detail of our lives was written in his book before we even existed. I believe this includes our gender. Every detail of our lives is written in his book. So parents, grandparents, again, our children, our grandchildren, they need to hear this. They need to hear mom and dad read this from the Bible. They need to read it from the Bible themselves. And I would encourage you, look for ways to celebrate this in your family. So in our home, we've got four little ones from eight to two. We look for ways to celebrate it by saying things like, I am so glad God made you a strong boy. Or to our daughters, I am so glad that God made you a beautiful girl. So think about ways that you can celebrate how God has made your children and your grandchildren. They need to hear how God created them, and they also need to hear it's not up to us to decide. Our children need to understand that as someone who has been created, they are not God over their own life. Further, they are responsible to the one who has created them. And friends, what's more, they need to see us modeling submission to the authority of God and his word. They need to see us living a life that communicates to them that we are not God over our own lives. They need to see us living a life pursuing the one who created us. And they need to understand that their identity, who they are, is grounded in what God says about them and how he created them and not simply in what they feel. We and our children need to see our bodies, our biological gender, it's a gift from God. And they are good gifts. And they're to be stewarded accordingly. So to put it another way, your children need to hear their body is not a mistake. Their body is not a mistake. So finally, before leaving this section, we also need to notice that God created humanity in the form of male and female for a specific purpose. Now, don't hear me saying this is the only reason he created man and woman, but it certainly is one of the main reasons that God created male and female. Notice what he tells Adam and Eve there in verse 28. They are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to fill the earth. A big part of creation for the man and woman is to fill the earth with little image bearers. Fill the earth with little image bearers. And the man and woman are biologically designed to fulfill this command. So quite literally, we have to say this today, the man fits with the woman. God has designed us to fulfill this command that he has given to us. And neither the man or the woman, can, can, we, can, we can't fulfill this command on our own. It requires one male and one female. Furthermore, Genesis 2, 24 through 25, and really multiple other passages of Scripture make it clear that the only proper context for sexual expression is between one man, one woman in the context of a marriage covenant. 
and any sexual expression outside of God's design for marriage is sin. Now, I want you, you'll hear this language a lot, um, that the Bible isn't relevant for a certain issue because it doesn't speak to it. Uh, if transgenderism, we can use that for an example. So a couple quick thoughts on that. Number one, of course the Bible isn't going to have the word transgender in it because we just recently created that word. But you'll hear that argument a lot. The Bible doesn't speak to this. And then they'll point to a word that humanity just recently came up with. Does that make sense? So of course that word's not going to be uh, in the Bible there. And also... God doesn't necessarily have to say everything that's wrong because he holds up what is right. And he says sexual expression is only between one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. And so, an implication of that being anything outside of that, we can confidently say is sin. And it does not bring glory to God. It's outside of his design. And friends, contrary to what the world tells us, his design is is good. It is good. His design for our bodies, for our relationships, for our lives is good. Here's another very helpful quote I think you have there in your notes. Since God made a very good world with no flaws, and since that world included humans created as men and humans created as women, to strive to become different than or even the opposite of how God made us, listen, can never result in happiness, flourishing, and joy, whatever it promises. Roman number three, God's good design corrupted. Now, as you and I well know, it didn't take long for God's good creation to go awry. Only three chapters in, Adam and Eve, they find themselves in a situation where they're tempted to doubt and ignore God's word, his plan, his instruction for their lives. And it's important to see Adam and Eve were actually given incredible freedom within the garden. God gave them incredible freedom. He only gave them one prohibition, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, friends, every, every single command is for our good. Man, we need to drive this home in our churches. The command, God is not some harsh taskmaster in the sky saying, do what I tell you, just shut up and obey. But rather, the commands he gives are for our good. They're for our flourishing, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. Somebody, if you, if you don't mind, please read for us Genesis 3, 1 through 7 there. Said to the woman, You will not 
Thank you, brother. Now, there's, <clears throat> friends, there's so much here just in these seven verses that we can learn about sin, uh, temptation, the fall. But for our purposes here this morning, I, I really want to highlight just a few things because we, we learn in these verses why every single one of us naturally stray from God and His design for our lives. So just a few things I want to point out. First, <clears throat> I think this is in your notes as well. I want you to see Satan's opposition to God's word and his plan. Satan's opposition to God's word and his plan. And the serpent, he works to cause Eve to ignore God's instruction about the tree and to doubt the goodness of God's plan in the boundaries that he gave them to live within there in the Garden of Eden. Notice there in verse 1. Did God actually say? Is this really what he said? Notice verse 4. <clears throat> he outright opposes God. He'll not surely die. Right? He just flat out lies. He says, you know, this thing that God said would happen if you disobey, it's not going to happen. Or notice in verse 5, there he actually questions God's motives in the boundaries he has made for Adam and Eve. Verse 5, for God knows. So he's now saying, this is actually God's true motive in giving this command to you. He knows, for God knows, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan is tempting Eve to think that God is actually withholding good from them. Satan is saying, you know what, Here, here's the real reason. Let me give you the, the peek behind the curtain. Here's the real reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. He knows you're going to be like him. So clear opposition to God's word and his plan. Secondly, I want you to recognize that Eve's disobedience, her rebellion against God, it began in her heart. It began in her heart. Her physical act of obedience, or disobedience, excuse me, first originated in the thoughts and desires that were going on in her heart. Now, we know from many other passages of Scripture, the heart or the soul of man, it's really the control center of who we are. Our thinking, our beliefs, our desires, emotions, the choices that we make, all of these functions take place and flow out of our hearts or our soul. There's many different words the Bible uses to describe the same reality, that, that inner reality of our heart or our soul. And I want you to notice all the heart activity that's taking place within Eve. There was significant activity taking place in her heart leading up to the actual act of reaching out, taking the fruit, and taking a bite. Now, let me ask you, how, when, when Satan approached her, how should she have been viewing it? Say that again. Okay, fleeing, right? She should have been viewing that th fruit through the command that God had already given to them, right? That it's forbidden. I can't do that. They're not to eat the fruit. 
God had already told them, if you eat this, it will lead to death. But notice what takes place in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, this is all heart activity, friends. Then she took up its fruit and she ate. So she began thinking of it differently. She's viewing it differently. She's thinking about how beautiful it is, how tasty it looks. And instead of desiring to obey God, she actually desires it. She craves the wisdom that it potentially offers her. And something that was not good for them now became attractive and desired. Friends, all of this was influenced by the false narrative of Satan. All of it was influenced by the false narrative of Satan. And notice too, Adam, he is shamefully passive and silent in this whole account. God had already told him in verse 28, your job is to rule over creation. Adam in that moment should have exercised his God-given right in ruling over the serpent and defending his wife. But he's silent. He's passive. He abandons his job and he just goes along with her. So friends, it's crucial for us to see this. Say, I'm not saying Satan forced Eve to sin, but he certainly did influence her. The false narrative that he was presenting to her awakened desires within her heart. But Adam and Eve themselves, they intentionally chose to sin and rebel against God. And their choice, again, was based upon what was going on in their own hearts. How they began to change the way that they were viewing the fruit. Friends, the same is true for every single one of us. No one or no thing forces us to sin. We sin because of what's already going on within our hearts. Thirdly, we need to see the attempt to assume the place of God over their lives. So obviously as creator, God alone has the authority to define right and wrong, good and evil. He alone is in the place of authority to tell humanity how to live their lives. And again, God gave Adam and Eve great freedom within the Garden of Eden. He only commanded them to not do that one thing. But, I think I have this quote in your notes as well, but by taking that fruit, human beings are saying what? No. We're not accepting that God is God. We're going to take that authority for ourselves. We are going to decide what is right and what is wrong. Friends, when we do the same thing, when we decide to do whatever we want with our lives, we are attempting to act like we are God. And for the creation to act like they are the creator, for Albert Muller fans, you'll understand that, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the right inflection of the creator, for us to act like we are the creator is absolutely absurd. 
Now, we know the result of Adam and Eve's sin, it, it meant devastating consequences, not only for humanity, but all of creation. This is clearly evident in everything. The brokenness of sin is, is everywhere. It fills the earth. Romans 5 teaches us that we not only inherit a sin nature due to Adam's sin, we also are guilty of committing sin as well, or committing sin ourselves. Romans 3 tells us there's not a single person that is righteous. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that's because we're all guilty of living just like Adam and Eve, taking lordship over our own lives seeking to live out according to our understanding instead of according to what God has revealed. We operate according to what we think is good for us. So in short, sin has literally wreaked havoc on every single part of God's creation, not only in our hearts, but also in our bodies, in the physical nature around us. The brokenness has resulted that has resulted from the fall it's evident in things like sickness disease infertility birth defects hurricanes earthquakes tornadoes the list goes on and on and on but for our class today what i want to do to close this first section i want to take just a few minutes and look at the effect that the fall has has on our sexual desires that's roman numeral four there results of the fall Disordered sexual desire and temptation. I listed a few passages there that you can go do study on your own. We're not going to have time to actually look at all of those in great detail. But I really encourage you to go read and study some of those. But uh, in, in 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter, he's speaking to Christians there. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh that wage war against the soul. So because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of our inherited sin nature, Peter says there's a war raging within our hearts. The passions of the flesh, these are, these are desires and passions that flow from our sin nature. That's what he's talking about. And those passions, we've got to understand, they seek to lie to us. They seek to convince us that unless we get what we want, we will not be satisfied. Now, the, these are real desires. They're real feelings. But they're also deceptive. They seek to mislead us, to lie to us. They seek to lead us to a place of trying to find happiness and fulfillment outside of God and his created order. And when it comes to our sexuality, this means that we are attracted to and tempted towards things that are outside of God's design. So lust, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, the list goes on and on and on. Now, I want to be clear, sexual desire in and of itself is not sinful. It's actually a good gift that was given to us by God, but was to only, again, be expressed in a very specific context between one man, one woman in the context of marriage. 
But sin distorts these desires. So instead of loving God and loving the things that he loves, sin distorts our desires to love created things more than the creator himself. That's a lot of Paul's argument in Romans 1 when you go and read that later on. But we've got to know God is not only concerned with our sexual behaviors, he's just as concerned about our sexual desires and feelings as well. And one of these verses that teaches God's concern about the importance of our desires is Matthew 5. Let's turn there just very briefly. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. Does somebody want to read that for us if you have it? Thank you. Arm wrestle for it, then there you go. Thank you, sir. So again, we don't have a lot of time to spend here, but we need to see these basic things here that Jesus is teaching the sin of adultery actually begins where? In the heart, with the lust of the heart. So there is a category, and the reason I'm kind of making this explicitly clear is there's a lot of churches now who don't believe this. There is a category for sinful desire there are many people now who are pushing that that category doesn't really exist. And I think it's clear from Scripture there is a category for sinful desire. Jesus is not talking about a person who simply notices a beautiful woman. Rather, he notices a beautiful woman and then looks after her with lustful intent. So in other words, the look has awakened a sexual desire that now seeks to fulfill itself through fantasizing about sexual activity with that woman. So Jesus is not only condemning the act of adultery, I believe he's condemning the lustful desire itself in this passage. Again, to state it clearly, sexual desire itself is not sinful. God is the creator of sexual desire for our own joy and own pleasure. But anything outside of the context for which he has given us that sexual desire is sin. And it must be confessed and repented of. So one thing I think we can learn from this passage is Jesus is teaching that the object of our desires can help determine the moral character of our desires. Does that make sense? The object of our desire can help determine the moral character of that desire. So in this situation, the object was the beautiful woman that was walking by that the man noticed. It awakened lustful intent, lustful desire And because this person was not his spouse, that helped to determine the moral character of that desire, that it was lust. It was sinful lust. So the object of our desire can help determine the moral character 
of our desire. And not only is the act of adultery sin, so too lustfully desiring someone who is not your spouse is also sin. And so one of the things this means is repentance is not only at the behavioral level. Repentance also has to take place at the heart level as well. Now, another important thing while we're on this topic that I just want to touch on very briefly, it's, it's very common for the argument to, made, to be made like someone blames their sexual immorality on something external to them. So a situation or another person, something that someone did to them, my circumstances... Now, what I'm, I'm, what I'm not saying is none of those things matter. They all have massive influence on an individual. But they do not force us to sin. The Bible is clear that sin comes from the desires of our own heart. James 1 helps us massively in this situation. Because in that context, James helps us to understand. I think, do I have that passage? I think I have that there in your notes. James helps us to get a, like an inside peek of how temptation works. And he starts out that little passage with saying, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God himself uh, is not tempted by evil, right? He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when... He is lured and enticed by his own desires. When that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, when you hear, when you hear the word lure, what image comes to mind? Fishing, right. Any fishermen in here? I've asked that before, and it, there was nobody. <laughs> but I think you understand, right? When, when you go fishing... You don't just drop a bare hook in the water, right? But what do you do to the hook? You bait it. You bait the hook. Friends, our sinful desires work the exact same way. The desire never really presents itself for what it truly is, but the hook is always baited. And I think the bait of our sinful desires is the lie that it tries to get us to believe. Does that make sense? This is what you see with uh, Adam and Eve, Satan. His tactics have not changed, friends. It's the same things where he's, he's tempting them to believe something that's not true. He's tempting them to believe a lie. So our, the, our sinful nature, it baits the hook. That bait is the lie that we're tempted to believe. And if we continue to meditate on that lie and it grows, we continue to desire those things. James then switches analogies. He says then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, right? Now he's imaging like literally giving birth to something. What I want you to see is like what James says is exactly what we just saw played out in Genesis 3. Friends, Satan's tactics and the tactics of our sin have not changed. They've not changed. It's seeking to help us to believe a lie. 
so that we'll chase after it. God in his grace comes along through our brother James. And I love the next verse. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Friends, how fitting of a warning is that today? (laughs) Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. But I love he goes on to say, every good and every perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. So where sin would seek to bake the hook and get us to think, if I just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. And our brother James has come along, he's like, don't be deceived. It's the exact same thing Satan was doing with Eve. Don't be deceived. But that's not all, that's not all that he says. He says, if you want true good, it comes from God. It comes down from God. That's where good is to be found. And I love, he goes on to say, uh, in there with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Where Satan and sin works to deceive us and lead us astray, friends, we don't have to worry about that with God. He's not seeking to lead us astray. He's not seeking to deceive us. There's no variation, no shadow due to change. Friends, our kids need to hear this. We need to hear this day in and day out. Our church family needs to hear this, this loving warning. Do not be deceived. Good is to be found in God, in God alone. Amen?